Today we're starting a new series that we're going to go through over several weeks, and for which we have a cool graphic, but it's not up on the screen. So next week we'll have our cool graphic up on the screen. But it's been on our homepage on our website, and the series that we're starting today is titled Centering on Ministry. That's a play on words as we get ready to move into our building later this year, Lord willing, that we call our ministry center. And as we do that, we want to prepare ourselves to center on ministry. So over the next several weeks, we are going to be looking at issues that will help prepare our minds, prepare our hearts for moving in and, Lord willing, being most effective for the advance of the cause of Christ as we go into this building that he's given us. So before we begin that, though, let me uh, give you a few announcements. Wednesday, we are on the agenda for the Trenton Planning Commission, and that's a Wednesday at 7 o'clock, and you have to do that in order to get your site plan approved, so that's something that's required, so we're on their agenda for that. We've given them our site plan, uh, but it does need to be approved, and those are meetings that are open for public comment, and they have to send a letter, a notice around to all the residents within uh, a certain radius, and that's happened. And they also put a notice in the uh, News Herald uh, as well. They have to, by law, do that. So they've done all that, and undoubtedly there'll be some folks uh, who will show up who will voice uh, their opinion, hopefully not many, but it's always the case that that happens. And uh, it may be that we don't want any traffic or on Sundays or we don't like that you got the building inexpensively. That's all too late, but nonetheless, it doesn't keep people from coming and, and saying those sorts of things. So it's helpful if we have a show of support as well. And any of you who then who can come, uh, please do that Wednesday at 7. You don't have to be a Trenton resident, but especially those of you who are Trenton residents. And then a few of you, especially Trenton residents, who are willing during public comment to just uh, say, I've lived here for X number of years. I think this would be a great addition to the community and so forth. They're not as weird as everybody thinks they are. You know, whatever. That would be helpful. Certainly wouldn't hurt. So that's this Wednesday at 7. If you, if you can't make it, uh, then please be in prayer about that, and we'll let you know uh, how that, that goes. Wednesday at 7, Trenton City Hall. This Saturday from 11 to 2 is a bridal shower for uh, Madison uh, Acres uh, on August 11th to become uh, Madison Cochran. So she and Bill are set to be married on August 11th, and we want to help them get started in a good way by giving them some, some gifts and uh, that'll take place at the bridal shower at Sharon Martin's house. The address is in your program today. And it's a drop-in shower anytime between 11 and 2. And especially ladies, I encourage you to do that, to be an encouragement to Madison and Billy. And then uh, coming up soon here in a few weeks, uh, Friday night, August the 3rd, is our annual Mud Hens game in Toledo. We've got uh, a, a set of tickets that we've reserved for that. And those are in hand. The ladies over at the uh, Resource Center have those. They are $9 per ticket, and we always have a good time. There's a fireworks display after the game as well. So pick up your tickets uh, before you leave today from them, $9 each. All right, today we are starting a several weeks long series called uh, Centering on Ministry as we prepare ourselves to move into our ministry center. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. I said 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3. 
And I want to I want to share two points with you today, if I get to both. Uh, but the first that I want to share as we start our series on preparing ourselves to move into this building that God has given us and for us to be most effective as we do is I want to remind some of you and inform others who may not know this teaching of uh, what is called the centrality of the church to what God is doing in his world. So first point I want you to see, and we'll spend some time looking at, is the centrality of the church, that the church is central to what God is accomplishing in his world. And you see that centrality expressed in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14 says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now in verse 15, you have these three descriptions. God's household or God's family. And God's family is his church, the church of the living God. And that church that is God's family is called to extremely important work. It is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now I'm going to explain uh, what that represents in just a bit. But just you just read that. And it puts the lie, does it not, to the common thinking today about the role of the church. That today, many people say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. But Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here you have these lofty titles for this thing called the church, and yet you have lots of people saying, give me Jesus, but you can keep the church. And it's completely foreign to Scripture. Now, I understand some of the reasons that people do that. Many of us have been in church long enough, frankly, to know that church can be a real pain. And the reason church can be a real pain is because, as we're going to see, church is not a building it's made up of people it's made up of sinful people and sinful people are a pain so the church is a pain and a lot of churches are not only a pain they're really weird and so you look at them and you go i don't really want any part of that either and not only are churches a pain and many of them really weird many of them are baptists (laughs) on top of that so i don't want any of that so It then becomes, I don't believe in organized religion, just a relationship with Jesus. I don't believe in organized religion. You know, and I always joke, well then be a Baptist because we're not organized. (laughs) But God does believe seriously, seriously in the church. And gives these lofty titles, this is my family, my household. It's my church, the church of the living God. It is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And the question then comes up, 
What is being spoken of in passages like 1 Timothy 3 when it says the church? Because many of you know that the New Testament word that's translated church is ecclesia. And that's a compound of two words, ek, which means out, like we get exit. So ek, and then kaleo, call. Call out, ecclesia. So the church is this called out group of people. Called out of the world and to God. Ecclesia, the called out ones. But that word, ecclesia, translated church, the called out ones is used a couple of ways in your New Testament. One way that it's used is of what is called the universal church. The universal church is everybody who is called out of the world and to Christ wherever they are universally. Whatever their nationality, whatever their geographic location, uh, no matter their economic circumstance, none of this matters. They've been called out by the gospel of the world and to Christ and thus they are part of the body of Christ, universal. And so it's called universal because it doesn't have a location. It's everybody who belongs to Jesus. And when the rapture occurs, the universal church that is still, still remains is going to be called out of the world, snatched out of the world in the, in the rapture. And it'll be everybody of whatever denomination they are if they truly belong to Jesus. So that's the universal church, so named because it has no particular location. It's universal. The body, the worldwide body of Christ. But then there is this sense in your New Testament that that same word, ecclesia, translated church, is used of a church in a particular location, a particular locale. And so as opposed to the universal church, we call it the local church. When we say local church, it doesn't necessarily mean the church close to your house. It might be, that's a good thing, but that's not the way it's being used when we identify local church. You know, we might say, I go to my local grocery store meaning the grocery store close to my house. But when we say local church, it may or may not be close to where you live, but those that comprise it gather in a particular location, a particular locale. That's as opposed to universal, scattered all over the place. So the local church now is an assembly of these called out ones in a particular place, locale. That then raises the question, What's being spoken of in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15? The universal church or the local church. Now, it says this ecclesia, this ecclesia of the living God, church of the living God, is God's family and is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so which of these is being spoken of, the universal church or the church in a particular location? Well, it surprises a lot of people to to know, as I'm going to prove momentarily, that this is referring to a local assembly of believers. Now, how do I know that? Well, here's how I know it, because verse 14 says, Although I, Paul, who wrote this, hope to come to you, Timothy, to whom I am writing, although I, Paul, hope to come to you, Timothy, I am writing you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. So this conduct, this behavior, is to take place somehow. 
Well, you know, if it's the universal church, how does that happen? One. So there's conduct, behavior. But I've given you specific instructions, verse 14. I've written you these instructions about this conduct for the church. What instructions? Well, it's the instructions that go before verse 14. I've written you these. What? And if you were to go back to chapter 2, all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1, just about before chapter 2 starts, many of you have a heading in your Bible that says something like, you know, rules for worship or instructions for public worship. And that's because chapter 2 begins. I urge them that, that prayers and intercessions be made for all men, for kings and for those that are in authority. So Paul is giving instructions to Timothy about conduct. Here's how worship ought to go when you come together. And there ought to be prayers given. But he goes on in chapter 2 to give instructions about the role of, of women in the church. And so he begins that in verse, in verse number 9 through, through verse 11. So there's the, the role of, of women in public worship. So I'm writing you these instructions about these matters when you, you come together. And then you come to, you come to chapter 3, which famously begins, if, if a man desires the office of, the NIV says, an overseer. The King James says, desires the office of a bishop, overseer, pastor. These are synonyms in the New Testament. If anyone desires to be a pastor, he desires a good work. Verse 2, now... An overseer, a bishop, a pastor must be the husband of but one wife. Blameless. And then it goes on to talk about what that blamelessness looks like in terms of the character of those who would lead the church as overseers. All the way down to verse 7. And then you come to verse 8. Deacons, likewise. And so then it talks about the deacons. And their qualifications. And then you come to verse 11 and it says, and their wives. Deacons' wives. And then you come back to deacons again. Qualifications for them. So you've got, going all the way back to chapter 2, rules for, instructions for public worship. And then in chapter 3, qualifications for those who would lead as pastors and deacons and deacons' wives. And then that brings you to where we started in verse 14. I am writing you these instructions about public worship, about qualifications for leadership, so that you'll know how things ought to go in God's household. The church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the church. That's all the local assembly. In this case, the church at Ephesus where Timothy was presiding and leading. Now, that is really heady stuff, isn't it, to me? Really? The local church is the pillar and foundation of the truth and God's family? It's His church, His called-out people that are part of this mess <laughs> called the assembly that we stuck a name on called community? Really? And God says, really? This is the vehicle through which I'm accomplishing my work. 
And I call this my family. And it's my church. And it's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And I have given to it, to them, to carry out the work that I've left you here to accomplish. So I'm going to show that now, that I've left to the local church to carry out the work that I have left you here to accomplish. I'm going to show you that. But before I do, I just want to make sure I cement in your minds that anybody who gives you the nonsense, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church, doesn't understand what the Bible teaches at all. The church is central to what God is doing. It's his family. It's the pillar and foundation of the truth. And it is the vehicle through which the work that Jesus left us here to do is accomplished. Now, how do I know that? I'd like to show you that from the words that Jesus gave before he ascended back to the Father and after he had accomplished his work on, his, his work on earth. So take a look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And you all are familiar with Matthew 28. I remind you, though, that it is the last chapter in the book of Matthew. And the passage we're going to look at, verses 18 through 20, are the last verses in the last chapter of the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew is the first book in your New Testament. And it begins with the birth of Jesus. And then it goes on to talk about the, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of that has now been covered in the 28 chapters of Matthew. And you come to the end and you have Jesus now having raised from the dead, ready to ascend back to the Father, and he's giving final instructions. And he says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, now let me just stop. Therefore go. Therefore, I mean, based on what? You go and make disciples, but why? Because all authority has been given to me. So you're now going in my name. So you go obediently. I have all authority. I'm telling you to go. There's no debate here. If you were here for the first hour, we are ready hearers. God says we do. We hear, we act. Why? Because he's God. And he has all authority. All authority has been given to me. And I'm telling you to do something. Go and make disciples. So that's why it's therefore go. Because I have all authority and I'm telling you to. But also because you can go with confidence. Because you're going in my authority. And you're doing what I've told you to do. And I am going to go with you. He says in verse 20. So therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then Jesus ascends back to the Father and he leaves to those guys. <laughs> the eleven. That's what verse 16 says. Then the eleven went to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had told him to go. So he says this to the eleven. They're going to replace Judas. 
in just a bit. But he says to the 11, his first followers, this is what I'm telling you to do. Now that's what Matthew tells us Jesus' final words are. But Jesus' final words are recorded in at least two other places. And I want you to see those. In Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. And just like Matthew 28 is the last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, Luke 24 is the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, then, in this last chapter, chapter 24, is in exactly the same spot that Matthew was as he records the final words of Jesus. Luke has recorded at the beginning of Luke the birth of Jesus. And he's recorded the temptation of Jesus. And he's recorded the life and ministry of Jesus. And the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And all of that has occurred. And now we come to the end of Luke 24. So in Luke 24, we're in exactly the same spot as you are in Matthew 28. Jesus has got the 11. He's giving them final instructions. But Luke gives us a few details that Matthew did not. Verse 46. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, Matthew records Jesus as saying, go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. Luke says, you are going to go to all nations, says Jesus, but I'm going to tell you some more specifics about what the content of your preaching as you go is going to be. And verse 47, he says, that preaching is going to include repentance and forgiveness of sins. So as you go now, in obedience to what I've told you, this is what you're going to preach, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, just remember that, or write it down, or circle it, or underline it. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then I want you to remember a third thing. Everybody awake? You can remember a third thing? From Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, and he said, Baptize them. So I want you to remember baptizing, because all three of those will become really important in just a bit. Baptizing, repentance, forgiveness of sins. Baptizing, repentance, forgiveness of sins. Okay? So these are Jesus' final instructions. This is what you're going to preach, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, he goes on, verse 48, or excuse me, end of verse 47. Jesus says, you will begin this at Jerusalem. That's something Matthew hadn't told us. Okay, you're going to start this all nations mission, but that mission's going to start in a particular place. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Luke tells us that. Then in verse 49, 48, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Stay in what city? Jerusalem. It's going to start in Jerusalem. I'm leaving. I'm leaving you here. You're going to do this. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Matthew has told us you're going to baptize those who respond to that message. You're going to do those three things. It's going to be worldwide, but it's going to start in Jerusalem. So go to Jerusalem and wait. And so where do we next find these guys? In Jerusalem. And guess what they're doing? 
waiting. And how do we know that? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And verse 1. And I say, you know, Matthew wrote Matthew and Luke wrote Luke. And then, you know, when I used to teach the teens, I would say, okay, Matthew wrote Matthew, Luke wrote Luke, who wrote Acts, and then some kid half asleep says Acts. And I go, no. So who did write Acts? Well, verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Now, there's no author's name specifically identified here, but it says in my former book, Theophilus, and you will only find the name Theophilus one other time in your New Testament, and it's in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 in verse 3, Luke says, I'm addressing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus to someone named Theophilus. And we don't know who Theophilus was. His name means lover of wisdom. Or excuse me, lover of God. Lover of God. Theos means God. Philos means love. Theophilus, lover of God. And so I've written the gospel of Luke to you, Theophilus, and now... I'm writing a second book. In my former book, that would be Luke, Theophilus. I wrote, verse 1, about all that Jesus, and and please catch this, all that Jesus began to do and teach. What does that imply? Jesus began something that now continues. And I am now going to give you the rest of the story as the ministry of Jesus which he began in his earthly ministry, now is carried out by these apostles he had chosen. So he gave these instructions. And what were the instructions? Matthew tells us. You're going to go and make disciples of all nations and you're going to baptize them. And Luke tells us that you're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. And it's going to start in Jerusalem. And so where do we find them? We find them in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us, beginning in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So the day of Pentecost came. And this is Luke's way of giving you a time marker for how long they've been waiting in Jerusalem. When the day of Pentecost came. Luke can never say, (laughs) you know, this happened on this date. He gives you some other time marker. He did the same thing in Luke 2 when he says, you know, Jesus was born in the days when Caesar Augustus was emperor, in the days when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is how he lays it out. So here's what he says, chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Well, how does that give you a time marker? Here's how. What's Pentecost? Penta means, means five, Pentecost means 50. And Pentecost is a feast in the first part of your Bible that took place 50 days after Passover. Now, when did Jesus die? At Passover. So Jesus died 50 days ago, like seven weeks ago. So how long have these guys been waiting? Well, Jesus dies at 
at uh, Passover. Pentecost, 50 days after. And what's happened in those 50 days? If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began until the day he was taken up. After his suffering, verse 3, he showed himself to these men and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Well, you got 50 to count for and you got 40 of them there. And you got another three when he was in the grave. So you got about seven days. So Luke is saying, he said, go to Jerusalem, wait until you receive power from on high. And they've been waiting for about a week. So there they are in this upper room. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, after they had been there for about a week, chapter 2 goes on to say, the Holy Spirit, this power from on high, comes upon them. Chapter 2 tells us that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It says they were all, it uses the word filled, but, but they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, how do I know that in Acts 2, this power from on high was them being baptized with the Spirit? How do I know that? Because look at chapter 1 and verse 5. Actually, go back to verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, Luke says, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. For the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, John baptized with water. In a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, there they are waiting. Waiting for this power to begin the mission. This power comes on them on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and they are baptized with the Spirit. And the Bible says that they began to speak in languages that they had never heard before, had never learned before. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, as you read that, you say they were speaking in tongues. I've never heard you do that, Brown. You must not have the Spirit. So what are these tongues that they were speaking in? I mean, I've got an uncle. I'm speaking as you now. <laughs> you know, I've got an uncle who's Pentecostal, and they speak in tongues, and I've been to their church before, and it's pretty lively. I mean, they speak in languages that none of us understand. In fact, they don't understand. So that must come from here. They're speaking in tongues that people don't understand. That's what used to happen when I grew, was growing up as a kid. I grew up Pentecostal. That's what used to happen regularly at our church. People spoke in languages that nobody understood, including the speaker. Is that what's happening here? Well, it says, verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then goes on, does Luke, to explain there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, let me just stop. You know, this every nation thing kind of matters. Because what have both Matthew and Luke told us, Jesus said, you're going to go to how many nations? You're going to go to all nations. And there are, on the day of Pentecost, for this feast, there are people from every 
nation under heaven. When they heard this crowd, verse 6, a crowd heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them, please don't miss this, speaking in his own language. So it's speaking in tongues, but people understand it. That's my language. And you're not from my nation. So how is it you're speaking my language? Speaking in tongues, the first time it ever happened in the Bible, was people speaking in languages that other people understood. Clearly. And it signified the fact that this is going to be for all nations. And you're receiving power now in the form of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens when people are baptized by the Spirit? What takes place? Well, the Bible tells us in a an, ex- very important passage what happens when the baptism of the Spirit occurs. Hold your finger here. We'll come back to it. But it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians 12, and verse 13 says this. We were all baptized by one Spirit. Baptized by one Spirit into what? Do you see verse 13? Into one body. And what is the body of Christ? Church. You see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit makes you part of the church. And when you come to Jesus, He spiritually baptizes you. You receive spirit baptism as part of a, and, and become part of a member of His church. So, what's being started in Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of this mission that Jesus gave... He gives these final instructions. I want you to go and baptize all nations. I want you to preach to all nations repentance and forgiveness of sins. I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power. They wait. They receive the Holy Spirit. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit, which 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us, says, is forming this body, this thing called the church. So the mission is starting and the church is starting at precisely the same time. How do I know this is the beginning of the church? How do I know that there weren't other people who were baptized with the Spirit prior to this? Acts 1.5, you will be baptized by the Spirit in a few days. Isn't that what Jesus said? But not only that, continue to hold your finger in Acts 2. Acts chapter 11. And Peter, years after this first occurrence, Peter is told by God to go to the home of a guy named Cornelius. You remember that in Acts 10? And so in obedience, Peter doesn't know Cornelius. He shows up. You know, wouldn't you just like to have been there? Hey, I'm Peter. God told me to come. And Cornelius says, yeah, he told me you were coming. How cool is that? Come on in. And Peter preaches to them. And they receive the message 
and they are baptized with the Spirit. And Peter is explaining now what happened in chapter 11. And in Acts chapter 11, in verse 15, Peter's recounting what happened, and it says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. The first time this happened was at Pentecost. And now these new people from new nations and new categories of people are being brought into the body of Christ. And then I remembered, verse 16 says, Peter, what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now God gave them, verse 17, the same gift, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think that I could oppose God? What he was saying was these people are part of the body of Christ just as much as I am. Because we are part of one body because we have all received the same spirit. When did it first happen? At the beginning. When was that? The day of Pentecost. What started on the day of Pentecost? The church formed by the baptism of the spirit. And the mission. They both start together. Now, let's say something else about the speaking in tongues thing and then move on. This is what you'll find in the book of Acts as you read of the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. One, the first time it occurred, it was languages that people understood, clearly in Acts 2. And you will find that it happens four times in the book of Acts, four. And there's a good reason that it happens four times because it happens to four different groups of people, all of whom are now being shown you're all, even though you're part of different groups, part of the same body now. Now, what are these four different groups? In Acts chapter 2, it's Jews. There were Jews from every nation under heaven, says Luke in Acts chapter 2. Jews. Second time it occurs is in Acts chapter 8. And to whom does it occur in Acts chapter 8? Samaritans. Why would God want to make a special show to Samaritans that you're part of this? Because who were Samaritans? Half-breed Jews that Jews hated. And so God says they're going to be part of it just like you guys. I'm giving them the same gift. They're going to be baptized with the Spirit into one body. Jews, half-breed Jews, Samaritans, Acts 8, Acts chapter 10, what Peter was just talking about. He went to the house of a guy named Cornelius. And Acts chapter 10 tells us that there was a, a God-fearer named Cornelius. And the God-fearers were a category of Jew. Or excuse me, of, of, of Gentile. God-fearers were Gentiles like Cornelius, but who followed the Jewish customs. So what about those guys? They're Gentiles. Maybe we can let them in. They at least follow the, the customs. And so the God-fearers are in. The Jews, the Samaritans, the God-fearers, and then you have the fourth and final occurrence in Acts chapter 19. And that is to people in a town called Ephesus. And this is just your run-of-the-mill, everyday Gentile. Pagan, like you and me. Not a half Jew, 
not observing the Jewish customs, just your run-of-the-mill Gentile. And you have all four of those, and you have every category covered. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, you have every one of these categories covered, and there is no doubt that the baptism of the Spirit brings all from all nations into this one body, this new thing called the church. So where did the church start? Acts 2. Baptism of the Spirit. And what else started in Acts 2? The mission that Jesus called. How do I know that the mission started? Remember I asked you to remember those three things? Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins. We're going to look at Acts 2 again, and we'll have to quit here in a few. Holy Spirit comes. People hear folks speaking in their own language. They're bewildered. They wonder what's going on. It's a, it's a commotion. And they ask about it, and Peter stands up to give an explanation. And from verse 14 of Acts 2, all the way down to verse 37, verse 36, verse 14 to 36, Peter gives a full explanation of what's happening here. And after Peter gets done speaking, verse 37 of Acts 2 says this. It says that they were cut to the heart after they heard what Peter said. What shall we do? And Peter says this in verse 38. Repent. Now, you all seen the word repentance recently? I ask you to remember three things. Jesus says in Luke 24, repentance is going to be preached in my name. And Peter says, repent. And be baptized. Matthew records Jesus as saying, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's that third thing, forgiveness of sins. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, and baptism. All of these three things that Matthew and Luke say, Jesus said, is the Great Commission, the mission that I'm giving to you. What is starting in Acts chapter 2? The mission. And the church. And the mission and the church start together. And the mission and the church go together. And you don't have the mission without the church. And you should never have a church that's not engaged in the mission. They start together and they go together. Now, I'm going to explain that. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in a minute. Because I know some of you are going, really? You have to get baptized to get your sins forgiven? So lay low for a minute. I'll explain that. But I'll explain something else first. And then that. And then we're done. In Acts 2, the church and the mission both start at the same time. And then they move forward together. You cannot have one without the other. How do I know they move forward together? Because Luke says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it's the third time the Great Commission is mentioned. Matthew 28, Luke 24, and now Acts 1 and verse 8. And here's what Luke records Jesus is saying. That you will be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem 
and to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You all see that in verse 8 of chapter 1? And then Luke gives you 28 chapters to show the progress of the mission beginning in Jerusalem, expanding to Judea and Samaria and to the capital of the, the then known world, to Rome. That's where it ends. And so he starts with the beginning of the church and the beginning of the mission in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. And then you find when you get to Acts chapter 8, it expands to Samaria, Judea and Samaria. And then you find Paul extending the mission to the capital of the empire in Rome. And along the way, Luke, in showing that it starts in Jerusalem, goes to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he gives seven progress reports. Seven. Seven progress reports throughout the book of Acts. And they all get this. The progress of the mission from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, they all involve the church. They all involve the starting and the multiplication of churches. Seven progress reports. Let me give you those references. Acts 2.47 is the first. And then chapter 6 and verse 7. And chapter 9 and verse 31. So chapter 2 and verse 47, 6, 7, 9, 31, 12, 24, 16, 5, Acts 2, 47, 6, 7, 9, 31, 12, 24, 16, 5, chapter 19 and verse 20. And then the last two verses of the entire book, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. 247, 67, 931, 1224, 165, 1920, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Seven progress reports. And it says, and the churches grew, and they multiplied in numbers as it moved out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, guys, everybody get this? The mission and the church start at the same time, and they go together, right? Now, what does Peter mean when he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. The key word there is for. And the Greek word that's translated for is ace, E-I-S, ace. And the preposition ace can mean in order to or because of. So you could be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. Or you can be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. So if I say John Weaver is going to jail for a crime, he's not. Teresa was worried. But he would be going to jail because of a crime that's already been committed when I say he's going for a crime. Right? And so the preposition ace, for, is either in order to or because of. In this case, be baptized for, because of, the forgiveness of sins that you have received in believing the message that I've just preached. Okay? The mission and the church start at the same time and they go together. As we prepare to go to this building that God has given us, understand it is central to what he's doing in his world. 
and you get to be a part of it, and I get to be a part of it. And he gives us a building now to do it better and to expand it. What an exciting thing for us. Over the next few weeks, we're then going to see how we can do that most efficiently. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments to be able to scan your word and to see your grand plan for this age and to see that you have called us out of the world and to yourself and we are the called out ones and we are the church. You have brought us together for such a time as this, at this time in this place, at this locale and this local church to be a beacon of light and darkness, to carry out the mission that you gave to your first followers and now by extension to us to the very end of the age. Lord, we go forward with great confidence, not in ourselves, but because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to our Lord. And we go forward with great joy as well because you are allowing us to be central to what you're carrying out in your world. Lord, you don't need me. You don't need us. You let us do this. And now you've brought us to this juncture in the history of our church to be able to acquire this ministry center so that we can center on the mission that you have given us and see it expand and see people that we haven't met but who you have chosen be called out of the world into yourself, to see them grow in Jesus, to see us grow in Jesus as one body. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this. And we ask you over these next few weeks to help us to gain and regain the excitement of being involved in your mission. Go with us this week as we serve you in it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.